Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, producer, and, well, let's just call him collaborator-in-chief, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I like to think of myself as a guy with a lot of interests and projects, but Joe Gordon-Levitt has me beat by a long mile. We all know he acts, and in 2013, he took on writing and directing with his highly acclaimed film, Don John. He also plays music, and as you're about to find out in this show, he's pretty good. But what intrigues me most is Hit Record, the production company he founded in 2005. An artistic platform as unique as Hit Record could only have been dreamed up by a guy as restless and creative as Joe. In our conversation, we cover why he pressed pause on an early acting career for the chance to go to Columbia University, the role of technology in modern life, and his criteria for choosing film roles. I also see if he'll fall for my clever ploy to get some background music for this episode of Off Camera. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hey, Joe. Hello, Sam. How you doing? I'm well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Uh, I'm... I tried to have you here for like two years and I think that you know finding the right time and there couldn't be a better time than this because you have so much going on but we've worked together for a long time I remember you telling me about this idea I don't remember how many years ago we were doing some photo shoot for something and that's you're like right. I want to do a thing that's you know where it, we you know get to have conversations and it looks really nice and, and photographed well but there's some more substance to it than just the look and I was like well that sounds like a cool idea man it's so cool you actually well, doing here it, we are. I know it's, it's great well thank you um yeah you know it, it, I you came to my attention really I was never a sitcom watcher but um why uh, not well, as it, <laughs> I think when you were on a sitcom, I was in my skateboard for five hours a day and play music for the rest of the day. Period. And you were watching Friends? No TV going on. <laughs> but what I like about working with you the most is that you're collaborative in a genuine way. Not, yes. not just in a, okay, I'll, I'll go along, but you're collaborative and you have a lot of energy. And, and so we've done, like, we've ridden bikes, we've jumped over hedges. Right. <laughs> we've even done spirited typing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but no, so it's really nice to have you here. And, Thanks, and I think Good what you're doing in your, with everything you do is, is amazing. And I'm jealous of Hit Record because I think it's, like, <laughs> the perfect use of the Internet. And, Thanks. And... Um, so I want to talk about all that. Okay. But I want to start with Don John because okay. I rewatched Don John like two nights ago, uh-huh. n- knowing that you were coming in. And how did it treat you? You know what? It actually more than held up. I I caught more the second time around. And for people who don't know, it was your directorial debut that you also wrote and starred in, and you're the lead character. John, mm-hmm. and uh, he has porn addiction, uh-huh. basically. Yeah. And, uh, and the film, to me, is an allegory for modern and future life. Like, it's almost a cautionary tale for what can happen if we get too involved with our devices. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it was very visionary even to see that it was, it was made three years ago, and, and it's even more true now. Yeah. You wow. know? Is this three years ago? I think so. Goddamn. Yeah, it was. Considering that you wrote it, what was sort of the idea or the philosophical spark that you grabbed onto first and all of a sudden the story made sense? Because there, there is that moment when like, your confidence goes, oh yeah, I, I know this story and I can make this movie, right? Yeah, so the, the idea and, and why I wanted to tell that story, I phrase it like there's, there's different ways you can interact with people and you can do it on a one-way street or on a, you know, on a two-way street. And John, the, the character in the movie, every interaction he has is on a one-way street. And that goes for the women that he watches in pornography as well as just all the real human beings in his life. Even never, in the confessional, right? Yeah, even the confessional, exactly. Even, even when he goes to church, he's never really connecting with people. He's sort of just consuming them as things more than engaging with them as you know, peers as, as other human beings. And, um, and I think that must, for me, come from having grown up working on TV and movies. And look, I, I'm, I feel very, very lucky to have gotten to do uh, what I've done. Um, but the, the one kind of weird, awkward part about it is that sometimes I feel like people see me as like a thing on a screen instead of as a, as a person, which is understandable because I've been a thing on the screen in their living room or on, you know, on their movie. So it, I can see why they would see me that way. But just from my point of view, and especially having, 
having sort of experienced this ever since I was a kid, it can be a little um, uncomfortable, sure. frankly. And and uh, when I was a teenager, I was I was really neurotic about it, and and uh, I would get I would get kind of um, uh, almost phobic about people recognizing me and stuff. I think oftentimes when we want to tell a story or make a movie or something, it comes from us wanting to deal with some phobia or some anxiety or some neuroses that right. we're, we're kind of trying to work out. And I remember in particular there was uh, there was one time where I I, uh, I was a teenager, I was like fourteen, and having to do the sort of like teen magazine press stuff, the like Tiger Beat and all that. I really, really hated doing that stuff when, when I was that age. I guess I would still hate it now if I had to do it. Luckily, I don't. But, we, can, uh, we can arrange that. Yeah, we can arrange we can a, find a Tiger Beat tie-in here. Yeah, well, cool. Um, but I remember uh, someone, uh, like a reporter for Tiger Beat, she asked me, like, it doesn't seem like you are enjoying this. And, and I said to her, um, this all feels like pornography to me. I remember that moment really clearly, and she, did, she didn't understand what I, <laughs> what I meant by that. But it sort of feels like that, being in Tiger Beat or being, you know, in really any, like, fashion magazine or, you know, held up as this, you know, celebrity or whatever. It can really feel, uh, you know, objectifying. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I got um, telling a story about someone who's addicted to pornography and, and that sort of central image of him relating to women as objects on a screen instead yeah. of as other human beings. Well, in that film, he's not the only guilty party. Tony Danza, who plays your dad, mm-hmm. is just locked into the television yep. uh, for football every Sunday night at dinner. Right. And then Brie Larson plays your sister, mm-hmm. and, and she's on her phone the entire movie. Yeah. And then Barbara, the Scarlet character. Yeah, Scarlet Johansson plays your girlfriend. And she's addicted to romantic movies in a parallel way to John being addicted to pornography. That's right. She's got her own one-way thing going mm-hmm. with her expectation of who you should be. Yeah. But then... Glenn Headley, mm-hmm. who plays your mom, I see her as this character that's that's so left out yeah, yeah. in this world. <laughs> and I wondered if that was what she represented for you in that in that dynamic. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, I think she she wants to engage. She's kind of trying, then uh, not having a lot of success in engaging with her husband or engaging with her son or engaging it's with sad. her daughter. It is it is sad. It's a comedy, but it's sort of <laughs> it's a dark comedy. Maybe I have a dark sense of humor. I often find uh, the movies that make me laugh the most are darker movies. Right. Uh, like No Country for Old Men, for example. I laugh my ass off watching that movie. <laughs> but there, there are a lot of funny parts in, in oh, that well, movie. Oh, well, it's the Coen Brothers. They make the Coen, anything funny. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But, but, okay, so that film, uh, that was the first feature you've written. Yeah. So I know how daunting it can be to write a feature film, and I wondered if that was the hardest thing you'd ever done up to that point. Yeah, that, you're, that's, I would say that's accurate. Um, directing's really different than acting in my uh, admittedly limited experience, um, because when you're acting, you're just really focusing on one thing. You just have to, you know, play your part and, and be true to your character. When you're directing, uh, you have to focus on everything. It's up to you. I mean, you you have to trust your collaborators as well, um, but uh, but you have to pay attention to everything everything that they're doing, and uh, and so it's yeah, it's just it's it's all consuming, and I loved it. I, I loved diving so deep into something. What did you find you learned about your own acting from having to direct other actors? Oh, uh, that's that's a good question. As an actor. All you can really do is try to provide sort of the ingredients to your director, and then you just have to trust <clears throat> that the director is going to put those ingredients together well and cook them up into something that you know yeah. the audience can eat. So as an actor, when you're only focusing on just being true to your character, you don't often necessarily want to think about how the camera sees you, because the camera isn't supposed to be there. You as, as right. your character don't, aren't aware of the camera. You're just sort of focused on your own feelings and experience. Um, the weird thing, though, is sometimes you as an actor are feeling and experiencing something from your perspective, but the camera sees something different. And that's where you have to really kind of trust your director. And I also imagine that it, it goes in reverse. Like, being an actor 
and having a director that's never acted, that can also be tough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, do you find that when you work with directors that have acted, it's a different experience? Yeah, definitely. I remember the first time I ever worked with a director uh, who was an actor, and it was Robert Redford, actually. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, He's been in a few things. I got, <laughs> I got lucky with that one. Uh, so I was 10, and I was in, uh, the movie's called A River Runs Through It. Sure. Norman McLean's uh, book. Yeah. And the story I remember that reminds me of what you're talking about is there was this one scene we were doing, and I had to walk up to my dad's desk and, and say something. And um, there was a mark that I had to hit. You know, they'll put a piece of tape on the floor, and you have to stand right there when you walk into the shot. And I think we had done a take, and I hadn't hit my mark right. And the cinematographer um, said to me, uh, it's really, really important that you hit your mark. Um, by the way, he ended up winning the Oscar, I think, for cinematography that I year. I think he did, too. Um, you know, it's important that you hit the mark because he set up all these lights, and if you're not standing right where you're supposed to stand, then the lights aren't hitting you the way that he planned. And So he really emphasized to me, uh, it's really, really, really important that when you walk up and, and talk to your dad, you make sure that you stand right where that piece of tape is. I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then, right before we rolled the cameras again, Mr. Redford leaned over to me and he said, I never hit my marks. Really? And then he, he walked away and, and we did the shot. And so, here's why I think he did that. If, if an actor, especially a 10-year-old actor, but any actor, has on their mind... I got it. I got to hit my mark. I got to hit my mark. Where's that piece of tape? I got to hit my mark. Then the performance is going to suck. Sure. So Bob, as he goes by, needed to make sure that hitting my mark was not the most important thing on my mind. And I think having a, a director that was an actor gave him not only the authority to be able to say, I never hit my marks, but the perspective to know why that was sort of important to say to me at that, at that time. Isn't that interesting, though, that, that, like, what a smart move, right? Yeah, yeah. And that stuck with you, obviously. I mean, you remembered it all these years later. Yeah, and I never hit my marks. Right. That's not true. I'm really good at hitting my marks. <laughs> okay, so with that film, I feel like it was a huge success. I mean, it was critically really well-received and made money. I mean, you kind of hit a home run right out of the gate Thanks. as an auteur. <laughs> Thank you. But I wonder if that, you know, is that a daunting situation now? You know what I mean? Is it oh. scary to do it now that you've had success the first time out of the no, game? No, you know, I actually don't think of it that way because, I mean, I, I'm very proud of the movie and uh, it made money considering how much it cost and it was critically acclaimed and blah, blah, blah. But when I see it, uh, I think, okay, but next time I'll do this better and next time I'll do this better and next time I'll do this better. And so... Uh, it, it really actually makes me want to do another one. That's interesting. You know, there's an attention to detail there. The character goes through such a transformation, but it's subtle. And that's what I loved watching it the second time, too. And when this character starts to have a two-way street, because mm -hmm. he meets Julianne Moore, and, mm -hmm. and he starts to change, and he grows his hair out a little further, and he stops <laughs> holding, you know, wearing this high fade. And, he, and then there, you, you made a really interesting decision because there's these patterns that repeat in the film. Yep. Every Sunday he goes to church. Mm -hmm. Every time he drives his car, he has road rage. Yeah. And every time he goes to the gym, he does his Hail Marys at the gym. <laughs> All right. But then like, he starts opening up, and, and he turns to play basketball once instead of going down the hall to the weight room. Yeah. And I felt like, in a way, it was a coming-of-age movie. Yeah. You know, like he was this, this guy who had stunted growth, mm -hmm. and someone woke him up to something. Like It ended hopefully, I guess I'm saying. And, and I wonder if that was also a comment on wanting to show an optimistic streak. Because I feel like you do have an optimistic streak in everything you do. Thanks. I mean, uh, it's not yeah. a dark ending. It's You're right. And um, that was, for me, kind of from the beginning, even though I wanted to tell a, a dark story or sort of do a dark comedy, I really wanted it to end with, with some hope. I, I, I am optimistic. And I, I wouldn't want especially my first, but really any, I wouldn't want to make any movie that's just like, oh man, people suck. Right. You know, because right. that's, I don't know, that's just not to me what I want to put out into the world. Uh, um, which isn't to say that, look, there are dark comedies that kind of end darkly that I love, you know, sure. like uh, Dr. Strangelove or whatever. You know, it ends with the bomb being dropped, you know, that's and right. I love that movie. Um, I just didn't, I don't know, I, I didn't feel like I, uh, I could bring myself to just go darker and darker and darker on it. That's, uh, well, there's redemption in there that I think is part of the story. And too. it is. It's a coming-of-age story. It's not just a, a tragic satire. 
Um, it starts out as someone worth satirizing, but yeah, it does it does sort of offer that hope of well, but anyone can change, even this guy, who's really really set in his ways. Right. Um, with the right circumstances, he gets humbled, he gets broken up with, um, you know, and uh, and sort of his ego gets knocked down a notch, and then he ends up meeting an unexpected person who's sort of unlike anyone else he's met, and. I do think that with you know the right kind of circumstances come together if if you're willing to to pay attention, uh, you know our our outlooks can change. Right. What the film starts out about is someone who's completely stuck, right, and mm-hmm. and then he becomes self-aware over the course of the film. And and I find even doing this or or in in my life being a parent or whatever that I much more want to be around people who are self-aware and and who are willing. And even eager to explore those parts of their personality that need work, because that's where, I think, in in our weaknesses and in our the things that we're having difficulties with, that's where the that's where the interesting part of life is, right? Sure. And I was reading some interviews you did at the time about that film, and you said that you compared it to, uh, like you said earlier, that objectifying of an actor. Mm-hmm. But also, I think a lot of people, especially starting out as a child actor. You get put in your lane, and you were not encouraged to get out. Sure. And then I look at your career, and you went off and did a series of movies that were so completely different from one another. You know, when I think of Brick and The Lookout and Mysterious Skin, and you were making these really interesting choices when you were young. And I wondered if that was partially, you know, your way of saying, I'm not going to be who you think I am. Maybe in a way. If I'm I'm really honest, though, I don't know how... how, uh, how much intention I can claim. It looks because, so deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, maybe that's just me reading into it, but it looks it looks like... I wanted to really... do a variety of things. I, I have an eclectic taste in movies or music, and I watch a lot of different kinds of things, and I enjoy a lot of different kinds of things, and, and I love playing characters that are really different from each other. Those are my favorite actors, the ones who always play kind of a very different character, and you don't recognize the actor, you see the, you know... The, right. That moment in story, and, and so yeah, that that's that is certainly what I was going for, and and, and it still is. But I, I think the point you're making about pigeonholing, it's not only applicable in show business. You know, I think everyone in the world experiences this. Yeah, we all have our sort of identity, and we have our circle around us of our our families, and then our friends and our surrounding communities, and uh, they all think that we are one thing and it makes it hard for us to then be a different thing yeah and that's one of the things I love about acting most is it sort of shows that anybody can really decide who they want to be how they want to behave what kind of attitude they want to have towards life or towards other people um even down to the superficial things how they look you know how they they present themselves how they dress or how they walk um and uh that's that's to me really empowering the 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 notion that even though you think you're one thing, probably mostly because other people around you think you're that thing, um, we get convinced ourselves like oh I'm I'm that. Um, I'll give you an example actually like probably the the biggest transformation I've ever seen um, is uh, my brother. So my brother his name's Dan. Uh, he's my older brother, six and a half years older than me, and growing up. He was always a really uh, pretty shy, sort of introverted right. guy, dressed just really kind of unremarkably, um, talked quietly, really funny, smart dude, and especially if you knew him like I did, you know. And then he changed uh, in a really beautiful way. He um, and, and a lot of it had to do with he got really into photography, actually. And he also got really into fire spinning, and I remember this time where we now was were, fire spinning like literally the batons with the fire on the end. Yeah, of like you'd have a like a a ball about this big on the end of a chain, and have two of them, and you know spin them around, like okay. light them on fire and spin them around. When you practice, they're not necessarily on fire. That's and, probably uh, probably good when you practice. Good way to do it. So I remember this time we were uh, we were in. Paris together, we, we had the chance to take a trip, and um, there were these street performers. There were these two young women spinning fire like that in the street. And uh, he saw these two young women spinning fire, and even though he was really inspired by it, he thought, yeah, but I'm not really the kind of person that does that. 
later he went to Burning Man, and there's a lot of people that spin fire there, and Burning Man can be that kind of place where... You can you, have an epiphany. Yeah, we, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. And, and, um, and he said to himself, why shouldn't I be the kind of person that spins fire if I want to? And so he, he set himself a goal and said, next year I'm going to come back to Burning Man and I'm going to be spinning fire here. Uh, and he did. And that ended, it, it changed his life. He, he ended up, um, you know, becoming like a really excellent fire spinner. He stopped working um, as a computer coder and he started a school and was teaching other people to spin fire. Really? Um, but was also not only just teaching them the kind of technical aspects of it, but his whole trip was more than teaching like the tricks, was trying to get people to come out of their shells in the way that he had. And he was using, teaching like an extrovert class. Yeah, exactly. He was using fire spinning as a way to sort of get right. people who don't think that they're the type of person to do that kind of thing, to show them that they can do you know, whatever the hell they want. And, um, and he became such an extroverted um, person that it's funny, people who knew him uh, in his 30s, when I tell him that he used to be shy... They're like, no, he couldn't. That guy, he, he was never shy. Um, so I just, I love hearing stuff like that. I love hearing about people who say, I can be what I want to be and, and, and change themselves. And um, so, you know, the transformation you see John go through and Don John is not as extreme because um, you're kind of just catching him at the beginning, at the of, beginning the, of his transformation. Right, right. No, but you do believe in that film that... that He's going to go much further yeah. in his transformation. Well, your brother died. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, but you started hit record with him. Yeah. Before he died, and it's it's amazing this path because I feel like um, from the way you've talked about your brother, uh, I get the sense that you know he was pretty inspiring to you as yeah. well. I mean, was there a parallel to that even with because. You know, I think of you sort of as a guy out of time a little bit. You know, you were described, I think, as a kid as being sort of an adult in the kid's body. Uh, played that on, on the show. <laughs> but I think it was John Lithgow that said, yeah, it's typecasting because that's who he actually right. is. <laughs> but, but then I think you also made this decision to go to college. Columbia, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're at school. I would assume that you're surrounded by all these kids that haven't started their lives yet. Mm. Right? But you are sitting there with this giant amount of work experience behind you. I mean, did you feel, was there a little bit of an out-of-placeness at school? Yeah, there probably was. I mean, I also, I think, put a lot of effort into, into I very much wanted to have a, an experience like a normal 18, 19-year-old kid. But, but can you when you've had the first 10 years of your life being on a you know on sets and working with adults and I don't know I mean I don't think anyone can really claim to be normal because we're all unique you know sure. but uh, I quit acting for a while because I'd always loved acting but all my friends were as you say kind of going off and getting getting started in a way saying like what am I going to do what am I going to be and I wanted that I wanted to not know what I was going to do and uh, and I and I sort of convinced myself well maybe I'll Maybe I'll have something to do with acting or movies or TV, but maybe I won't. Maybe I'll do something that has nothing to do with that. And uh, that was important to me to kind of get to ask myself those questions and give myself that fresh start. But very shortly, I, I gravitated very strongly back to what I had always done. You know, the, the, the nine months of my first year in college was the longest time I'd been away from acting since I was six or something. Right. And, and I started dressing louder and started, like, you know, um, being more, like, performatory in my social life and, you know, behaving in, in ways such that, uh, I guess, not having the creative outlet of acting, it kind of had to come out some other way. Right, right. Um, and I started um, playing with my video camera a lot. And was that the first time you'd lived in New York as well? Yeah. So I would go around New York and just shoot all the time. Right. And that was sort of the beginning of what, what, what became Hit Record. And uh, while I was still in college, I got my first copy of Final Cut, the yeah. editing software, and started to take the things I was shooting and putting them on my computer and getting to edit them. It was just so fun because 
I'd been playing with video cameras and stuff ever since I was a kid, but when you can't edit, exactly. there's only so much you can really do. You can't really make yourself a movie if you can't edit. That's right. Well, it's so interesting that you quit acting, right? And, and I think, like, okay, you've been doing this since you were six. By the time we're asking our kids what they want to be when they grow up, you're already, you're already successful. And I would imagine that's a lot of pressure when success comes calling, too, because I'm sure, like, just because you quit acting doesn't mean your agent's completely stopped, right? Well, some of them did. As soon as I sort of made it clear that I wasn't so interested in doing, a, doing more jobs like I had been doing, and it wasn't because I didn't like the jobs I'd been doing. I loved those jobs. It's just I wanted to do something different. Right. And this goes back to the pigeonholing. As soon as I said, no, like, I don't really want to do another TV comedy. Uh, as much as I loved Third Rock from the Sun, I just don't want to keep doing that. Or I don't really want to do another, like, kind of teen movie, like, as much as, you know, Ten Things I Hate About You is, you know, right. was a really fun experience. I just didn't want to do more of that. And if I didn't want to do those two things, pretty much all the agents said like, well then, you're on think, your own. Thank you. Yeah, think that's it for you. And there was just there was just one agent um, uh, who thought that I could do something else, and he's still my agent today. Isn't that funny? You look now and you say, how short sighted is that to tell a kid who's, you know, a kid that yeah. they're already <laughs> in their lane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a good lesson for parents of like, don't don't define your kid. But that's, I find that even more fascinating, though, that after a elementary school through high school home education system that you probably went through in terms of uh, on-set teachers and things mm-hmm. like that, that you end up in Columbia saying, I want to be a student, I want to forget all of that and make my choice. And it reminds me of, of a tiny story that you wrote for Hit Record. You put out one of your things, mm-hmm. which is these tiny stories that could be collaborated on. Uh-huh. And if I recall you correctly, yours was... Um, when I was young, I just wanted to be something. Uh-huh. Now I just want to be younger. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? Something that, like so, that? so, you know, to be fair, I didn't, I didn't write that. I, I, though I did edit it. Um, I'm trying to remember. The way it works on Hit Record is people will write, and then other people will rewrite. And the, sort of the idea is it's, it's always up for grabs, and we're not as possessive about, hey, this is my thing, don't touch it. It's more like, well, what can we all do together if we share and we all kind of like play with each other's right. stuff. But yeah, right, when I was younger, when I was younger, I just wanted, I wanted to be something, and now I just want to be younger. It's a dark, <laughs> it's a, that's a dark, tiny story. Well, I took it as, what is the mindset of a kid that is working from a young age? Mm-hmm. And then, first thing I thought is, are there any regrets associated with not having a normal childhood, so to speak? Mm. Well, first of all, what's a normal childhood? I mean, who who got wow. who got who let's, can really let's, call let's themselves normal? Let's not say normal. normal. Let's right. say a childhood without being sag and you know <laughs> getting checks and yeah. having teachers in in RVs. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, so for one thing, uh, I did go to school sometimes. I went, you know, like when I was on Third Rock from the Sun, I was at a normal high school, public high school, Van Nuys High, uh, about a quarter or a third of the time. And that it was always something that that was on my mind a lot, uh, and I, I I strived as much as I could to try to have more normal experiences. That's why I went to Van Nuys High. the The more normal thing, if you're on a TV show like that, is like you said, you just you go to school with your studio teacher in an RV, and then if during your time off you just do school at home or whatever. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to I wanted to go to school. Um, you know, to make friends and, and uh, like, you know, to meet girls. Sure. Because <laughs> where else was I going to meet girls when you were 14? Um, At the craft service table. Yeah, <laughs> those aren't girls my age. <laughs> so there was, a, there was an awareness of that. There then. was. But, but yeah, did I, did, I, did I have regrets and do I have regrets? You know, I don't like to think of it as regret because... Again, we all make choices. We all have a completely unique path that we go down. And any, any you know, decision you make to go down this path means you don't go down a bunch of other ones. And you can spend your life regretting the paths you didn't go down. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like, sometimes I, I think, uh, like, I, I look at, um, for example, um, like, sometimes when I'm in New York, I love New York City. 
I love how you're just out on the street with walking around with tons and tons of people, and they're strangers, but you can just check them out. And sometimes you'll see someone who's really extroverted out there on the street and just interacting with strangers and being that way. And I wish that I could do that. And I don't know, maybe I could, but it would be different because if I did that, you know, half the people I talk to would say like, "Wait, aren't you?" I, I know your face from somewhere, you know, and that, sure. would, that would change it. I can't just, like, approach a random person on the street and strike up a conversation that's completely fresh. Yeah, it never and, struck me that you can't people watch. Well, I can watch. Watch, I can do, and I, and I do. And when I, when I walk around in New York, uh, no one notices me um, because I'm good at kind of being inconspicuous. Is and that I, a skill that you develop? Yeah. You think? yeah. <laughs> I'm a ninja. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I can totally watch, and I do that. But as far as engaging with people and say, you're a stranger, I'm a stranger, let's talk about something. Um, that's an experience that's a little curtailed for yeah. me. And I, I wouldn't use the word regret, but sometimes I, I miss it, and I think wistfully, like, oh, man, that would be cool if I could, if I could do that. I wouldn't give up the fucking amazing life that I get to live sure. in order to have that. Um, but it's, you know, it's, yeah, sure, it's a, it's a trade-off of sorts. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. You know, throughout my life, I have gone through periods where I've done therapy for various reasons. I remember in my 20s when I was first trying to find a therapist, I was literally looking in the phone book and cold calling, and I ended up finding somebody that, you know, was across town, and it took me an hour to drive there, and I knew nothing, and and it was a very difficult, you know, blind leading the blind sort of situation to try to find a therapist that could help you. Well, with BetterHelp, the whole system has changed. And what BetterHelp does is they offer licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help. And you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, including anxiety, grief, depression, relationship conflicts, and they can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. I wish I would have had this a long time ago because I'm the first one to say if things aren't working out and if you can't figure something out or if you feel stuck, you got to find some help. So here's what you do. You fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. Then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you are unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced BetterHelp counselors. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code CAMERA. So if you need some help, if you need someone to talk to, try BetterHelp Online Counseling. Get started today at betterhelp.com camera. You can talk to a therapist online and get help. Now back to the show. Okay, so hit record. I want to go into it through your handle or username because you, it's Regular Joe. And, yeah. and even on the show, you call yourself Regular Joe. Uh, and I wondered where that came from and what was the idea behind that or, or, or if there's some fantasy of being Regular Joe. That sure, that, that's definitely part of it. You, I mean, you definitely hit the nail on the head. There's, there's I mean, Regular Joe sort of a pun with various meanings. Um, part of it is, yeah, I guess sort of a fantasy of being regular in that way, normal. Um, but then the word regular can also mean um, like repetitive, uh, consistently repetitive. Ah, uh-huh, sure. And part of hit record is just, you know, the idea of like, do it. You should, you know, I, it was before it was a TV show or a production company or a website or anything. It was just a little thing I would say to myself to kind of motivate myself to be creative. And so doing it regularly is a huge part of being creative, I think. If you want to be a writer, the, most, the best thing you can do is just every day write. If right. you want to be uh, you know, a filmmaker, the best thing you can do is try to once a week finish a film and do it with regularity and don't stop. And even if 
the film you made this week is not as good as the film you made that last week. Doesn't matter. Keep going. Just do right, it regularly. Right, right, right. Uh, so that's another part of regular Joe. And then, um, and then the other meeting is regular, like the rules, like the rules and regulations. And I actually think that creativity is helped by rules. We all think of artists as, as the people who break the rules and, you know, oh, don't, don't tie me down with your rules, man. But actually, if you, ha- if you set some rules for yourself, it, it can really help your creativity. Like, um, like uh, a tiny story. Like, like a, a tiny story, story. exactly. That story can only be, you know, two or three sentences long. That rule will really inspire you to think of, think of stories you can tell or think of how you can tell a story. Or, right. And so regular Joe setting those rules be like okay here's this creative challenge here's the rules around it this is the game we're going to play let's see what we can do well the most innovative and exciting thing about it is that you actually created a community and and (laughs) to me you're at the center of this thing obviously but but regular joe to me means you're trying to give these other people like a very clear message that hey i'm just one of you guys and we're doing this together and and we should explain it started out as this idea that that you can make art collaboratively Mm -hmm. right and and through the power of the internet, we've, we have this thing that we've never had before. Yep. And most people use it for the antithesis of what I think it could be for, right? Yeah. But what you say is, look, I have a song or I have a drawing or I have a, an idea. Let's like make a production company of people out there that I don't even know that can contribute to it. And then you end up in a sort of a curatorial role in mm-hmm. some ways. Like you call yourself a director in there, but I think you're also a curator. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then it's turned into a television show, and you've done two seasons so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also sort of like, it's one of those things, unless you really look into it, maybe you don't understand. I'll just yeah. play right? something so I really simple. We should try to show right. an example. And then what we'll do is we'll put it, it out on the side. Yeah. We talked about say, this a little bit before. I played this little yeah, simple I liked thing. your idea. And maybe, I, maybe you could just talk along me through it, how this however, works. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, so that's just it. What you said is, is so much of what goes on the internet right now is... Hey everybody, look at me! Look what I did, which is fine. Um, but on hit record, it's more: what could we all do together if we collaborate? And so um, we encourage people to not just put up their finished song or finished short film or finished short story, but rather to you know work together and, and put out something that's not necessarily finished. But like, here's my idea, or here's a seed of something. What would you guys do with it? And, right. and then everyone is allowed to take what anyone else has done and build on it. There's no copyright it, issues. Remix or... it. Well, the copyright issues are all, like, up front we say, that's, part, that's our terms of service. When you put something up here, you're saying that anyone else in the community can take what you've done and build on it or remix it or revise it, and that's how we collaborate. And everyone gets credit for their contribution. And uh, if something that we all make together, like the TV show or like the Tiny Book of Tiny Stories, makes money, then everyone whose work contributed to that production gets paid. Um, and uh, and we do it as a team. Yeah. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah. But it's it's sort of all predicated on on people being open to having their stuff fucked with. <laughs> right. Right. There will be some bassist out there. There'll probably be a number of them. And they'll, it'll be someone I've never met before. Um, okay. It'll also be so some say, drummer or some other kind of percussion. Maybe it'll be just someone banging on a table. And then what's really cool, though, about Hit Record is there'll be something that I don't even anticipate. The stuff that really gets me off is, this, is the stuff that I don't even imagine at all. Right. And they really surprise me. So let's, let's do an example of that. Yeah. Okay, so, so you... So you uh, were very kind to lend me your beautiful Telecaster. Um, so like... Okay, so let me just stop for a minute uh, for the benefit of the podcast audience and explain what's happening here in the room. Okay. You have my guitar and you're about to play something simple off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. And then, through the magic of editing, the podcast audience is going to hear in real time a song being built upon whatever you're mm-hmm. about to play. So we'll hear different instruments, uh, bass, drums, keyboards, singing. But we'll hear this song go from something simple to a full-blown collaboration between yourself and all the hit record collaborators. Yeah. So now that the scene is set, take it away. Okay. 
So like I'll play um put that up on the site, right? right? Well, I'm excited to go into the future and, and see what happens and maybe we'll we'll play it out over the closing credits. Yeah, well. but that's so fantastic. It, okay, okay, cool. Thanks for doing that, man. I really appreciate you taking it. Well, interest. I think in a way I I do a lot of I'm like you. I play guitar, I I take pictures, I direct, I draw, mm-hmm. and I'm very jealous of hit record because I feel like if nothing else, it forces you to be creative, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't run this community and not get involved, right? It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I wanted to act, but um, I didn't want to do the stuff, the kind of uh, roles that were available to me, and I couldn't get any other kinds of roles, and that really hurt, because I, 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 I just need to have some kind of creative outlet in my life. I think a lot of us have that, um, where whatever it is, we just need to make something, kind of get, you know, be able to express yourself. Yeah. And so hit record was just my thing that I would say to myself, like, well, just do it yourself. Don't wait for some movie producer or movie director to hire you to act in a thing that you want. Just, just Let's just start making things. And I was shooting stuff on my video camera and editing them together or making little songs or writing little stories. And, and that was hit record. And, and then my brother helped me set it up on a website and this community started forming. And uh, it became apparent that rather than the community just checking out the stuff that I was doing, the more natural tendency was for people on this site to want to make stuff together. Yeah, and uh, and that's how that's how it started happening a number of years ago now, and it's been growing slowly since then. Do you have a special relationship with it that feels different in terms of? I mean, obviously, when Chris Nolan calls and says you have the role of you know <laughs> in Batman or whatever, mm-hmm. that's got to feel good. But but does this feel different and almost more pure and personal to yeah. you? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I love them both, but um, yes, there's there's something about hit record that uh, that satisfies something in me that you know um, the the jobs I get to do in, in more conventional show business don't don't satisfy the same right. way, and I love it. I don't know what I would do without it. Actually, I think I would be sad if I if I didn't have sort of an outlet to write a little story or play a little song or like and it's not that I want to like have a career as a published novelist or have a career as a singer-songwriter per se but that doesn't mean that I don't like to write or make music or right. it doesn't have to be the main thing that I do in order for me to really like doing it you know right but I mean that's sort of the opposite of a Daniel Day-Lewis career mm-hmm. who maintains, you know, he's the ultimate example, I guess, of maintaining your mystery so that yeah. you can disappear into your characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wondered if you had to sort of make this decision of, okay, I'm, I'm going to put myself out there in a different way. Was that hard for you? I, don't, I wouldn't call it hard just because it felt really natural, but it, you are making a really good point, and, it, and there is a trade-off there. And I actually do think that because I put myself out there in, in that way, uh, there are some people that sort of um, don't then want to see me like play a Frenchman in in the walk or something like that. And, Interesting. You know, if that I I can't control it, and I I I, I even get it. I I get it. You know, but uh, I'm gonna keep doing both as long as I can. You know. You know, you you mentioned the walk, and I feel like we have an interesting opportunity here because it's come out. Mm-hmm. But you know, usually when any actor goes on a talk show, The Tonight Show or whatever, they have three to five minutes to sort of plug their film uh-huh. and it hasn't come out yet. And I guess 
something that you never get asked in that typical plugging of a film is, when you saw that particular film with an audience, mm -hmm. what surprised you about that experience? Well, we got to premiere the movie in New York at the New York Film Festival. And um, it's a very New York story. It's, sure. I mean, very much, it's an homage to the World Trade Center towers. And uh, obviously in New York, there's a lot of emotions around those two towers. I, I expected it. I can't say it surprised me, but it, it really, um, it was impactful to sit in a theater full of New Yorkers and watch that movie because, you know, obviously when any of us see images of those towers, our mind immediately goes to the tragedy. Uh, and I, I was in New York on 9-11. I was going to school. And, uh, and I think it makes perfect sense and it's appropriate to, to think about that tragedy. Um, but what we wanted to do with the movie is not just focus on the tragedy. And I think that that's, that's good to do with any tragic loss. Like you, you mentioned before, you know, my, my brother died and my experiences in grieving for him, I, I don't want to just focus on his death. I want to, mostly I want to remember his life and remember great, cool things that we did together and wonderful memories that I have and images in my mind and that's where I want to spend most of my focus. And, and so with this movie and the towers, we're, we're celebrating this moment right at the birth of the towers. This was, you know, Philippe Petit did his walk before they were even uh, complete. Right. Um, so right at the beginning of, of the towers' life, this incredible thing happened. And, uh, and getting to sort of celebrate that with a room full of New Yorkers was... Uh, I mean, you could hear people crying and stuff, you know. It, 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 there's no replacement for that, for being in a, in a cinema with other people, a whole room full of people, um, and all feeling the same thing along with this story. I, I think there's, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain something to that that you can never get when you watch a movie alone. Your emotions get sort of picked up and, and collectivized in a way. When you're watching a film that you're in with an audience, are you focusing on your performance, or are you listening to the reactions to the performance? Just focused on my hair. Just That's your it. hair. <laughs> Just, I mean, is it sort of like, obviously I would think you would watch Don John differently with an audience than you would a film that you just were in, but I, I wonder if you are, if you're listening to see like, did that line land the way I want it to? Did it? You know, are, are you paying attention to the audience, or are you are you watch? Are you critical of your own performance? It's sort of a sign to me of whether the movie's working or not. At, at where my mind goes. Interesting. Uh, and if I'm able to just watch it as a spectator, because I love watching movies, and if I can just watch the movie, then to me that's sort of a success. Uh, I had that with the walk right away. Even actually watching the rough cut of the walk, um, I found myself just. Enjoying the movie. I mean, Robert Zemeckis directed it, you know. Uh, he's the guy that made Back to the Future and Forrest Gump and so many great movies, and he's such a storyteller, he, and he knows how to bring in an audience. And so uh, I, I found myself sort of just enjoying the show. It doesn't always happen that way when I, yeah. when I watch movies that I'm Well, in. I wonder. I mean, because you said earlier, when I asked you about what your next directing experience will be. You said, well, yeah, of course, if you look back and what you could do different, you always think of things. It, it's interesting because as a director, you know, I'm sure that's a different experience than as an actor, mm -hmm. especially on an independent level. Mm -hmm. The location we didn't get or the money we couldn't spend on, yeah. you know, how that story was impactful. But in the case of The Walk, anyone could look at the wire stuff and say, well, if Joe learned to walk on a wire, that's amazing and that must have been really difficult. But I wonder if there's things that that were really difficult that, that the audience never would have picked up on with mm. that experience. Mm -mm. Well, there's the French, right? So, you know, I spoke in a French accent and yeah. they did a bunch of French dialogue. And this goes back to you saying, like, kind of getting to speak about a movie after the reaction. So it's funny because people have very differing reactions to me speaking they do. with a French accent. They do. Right? Or, to the, or, the, or to the construct of how do we make an American movie about a Frenchman yeah. and, and what do we do in the story so it makes sense that it's not subtitled because yeah. obviously Zemeckis, as a filmmaker, you're like, we should subtitle this entire film. Yeah, well, but he was, I mean, the device he used and maybe he exaggerated it, but it is true. Philippe Petit was obsessed with speaking English and he still is. Uh, I've gotten to know Philippe rather well now, and, and he almost never speaks French. Like, he, he likes English, and uh, I'll speak to him in French sometimes, 
and he'll respond with a sentence in French before he switches back to English. Really? Yeah. He's just, you know, he's an expatriate. Uh, he moved to New York, and he never right. moved back to France. And, um, and that was the beginning of his sort of love of New York and, and the U.S. and the English language. And so in the movie, you see him sort of being obsessed with, no, we have to speak English, we have to speak English. And that, that, is, that is true about him. Uh-huh. But yeah, so there are people that say, oh boy, you did a really thick French accent. And so part of me is like, man, maybe I shouldn't have done it as thick as that. But then when you listen to him talk, that's how he talks. <laughs> right. In fact, he speaks with a thicker French accent than the one I did in the movie. And, and at the same time, you know, it's a, this is a movie that's like, it's more of a mythological version of the story. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a brilliant documentary, of course, that won an Oscar, Man yeah. on the Wire, and, and I love that movie. That's a more kind of... Um, well, it's a documentary. You know, it's almost more journalistic. It's more objective. Yes. Whereas this is very subjective. It's larger than life. It's like a fairy tale. And it's through the eyes of Philippe Petit, not through the eyes of a documentarian making a documentary about Philippe right. Petit. And so for those reasons, you know, we were depicting Philippe how he sees himself, <laughs> you know. And of course, like the being on the uh, Statue of Liberty. Yeah, exactly. Of course, like exactly. if someone said, "Where do you want to be interviewed?" Yeah, <laughs> that's where he would say, "He's like, yeah, I'll be up at the top of the Statue of Liberty, and you'll be able to see the towers behind me as I tell my story." I mean, that's very him. That's how, right? You know, that's how he would. In some ways, is it a fool's errand to sort of listen to that stuff after the fact? It's a gr- that's, I think about that all the time. I I don't have a, an answer for you. I think it can be really useful. Um, to understand your audience's reaction to something you've done. It can also be damaging, and you know you can get overly obsessed with it, and I've gone down that rabbit hole too. Yeah. Here's the thing, though, and this, this, this kind of goes back to hit record, is I actually think that there's something a little unnatural about making something and then having it be finished, and it's never, it never changes again. There's something cool about that, and I think there's, it's always worth preserving the version that happened at this point. It's a limit of technology that movies don't change. We've, they're finished, and then they're finished, and they never change anymore. Stories, I think the more sort of natural way that stories are told goes back to like probably the, the dawn of humanity. I'm not speaking as any sort of author, you know, authority in anthropology or anything, right. but my hunch is that people would gather around, tell a story, and then next week they'd tell the story again and it'd be a little different. And then next week they'd tell the story again and it'd be a little different. And so stories live and they grow and they evolve. Right. Whereas with a movie or a published book or you know, a record in wax or something like that, it, it stays. It doesn't evolve, it doesn't change. And there's something beautiful about that. It's, it's preserved as a record. But I also think, and th- this is what's cool about sort of remix culture that's, that's emerging now, is we can have the original version, but then we can have the remixes, and and the art can evolve and grow and be infused with the reactions, so that the audience has the ability to participate more than just being a critic, just saying, I liked it or I didn't like it, but rather saying, like, here's what that inspires in me, and, and that's sort of what Hit Record is about, is... Let's all be together. If you make something, I'm not just going to tell you I liked it or I didn't like it. If I liked it, rather than just giving you the thumbs up, I'm going to take what you did and, and do something new with it. Right. And then it can grow and, and evolve. And um, I, I think there's something really uh, natural about that process. Yeah, it's interesting to look at an experience like the walk through the filter of hit record, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is true. It's like it goes out there and then everyone talks about it, has their opinions, and they filter back to you. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's a one-way street. Right? It's a one-way street. That's yeah. exactly right. So you're obviously not someone who says, well, I never read the criticism. No, I read it. I, I read them sometimes. I, I think the most interesting uh, film criticism to me, though, are the, the film critics who sort of bring their own personal self into their movie reviews. What's an example? Uh, I read somebody talking about The Walk and they were like, I used to work at, you know, at the Twin Towers and here's my story and then here's, how, here's what The Walk meant to me. More like a columnist version than a review. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That to me is, I just find those reviews more fascinating to read and more enriching than the, the reviews that sort of posture as objective 
and that say the film is this, the film isn't this, because uh, objectivity is sort of. Uh, I don't think that's real. There isn't any objectivity. Everyone has their own. Everyone's kind of bringing their own personal perspective and experiences to the cinema when they sit down to watch a movie. And so I'm more interested in in the critics that indulge that and say like, here's my perspective, right? And here's how the movie fit into my perspective. Whether I liked it or didn't like it is actually less relevant or less interesting to me anyway than. Like, what did it make you think of? Tell me a story in your life that reminded you of the story that you saw in the movie. You make a good point, which is that, you know, there. I think some critics feel like they should they should live at this high level of intellectual discourse and provide this service of this film is not up to snuff as this film, and yeah. and this is worth your time, and this isn't, and and it is. It, it's it's describing it as though it is, it, you know, this set in stone thing rather than an experience. You know, though, the thing that I found fascinating from Man on Wire, the documentary, was that it was such a performance. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he laid down. He did a lot of things. He sat down. He went back and forth. And there's this calmness to him that you also projected completely. Yeah, he tries to bring a grace to his wire walking that's different than, you know, the way he would put it is circus wire walking, you want the audience to see the effort because it makes it scary and, and you know typically in a circus the wire walker will even pretend like they're almost going to fall because it gives an extra you know scare to the audience whereas Philippe his whole thing is I, I approach it differently I approach it you know as, as a ballet as a poem and I make it graceful and effortless and well you said that that was one of the hardest films you've ever done yeah and then you yeah. said that the next film you did the night before mm-hmm. with Seth Rogen and Jonathan Levine and Anthony Mackie was one of the easiest films you've yeah, ever Yeah, true. <laughs> so I saw that film, and I walked away thinking a couple of things. One, I think you can do anything. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was so Amazing. impressed with... And, and the, you know, the movie really grew on me, and, and, and I became very connected on a human level to your character, even though anyone is going to argue that that film is very hard R, you know, like those elements that we've come to expect from that Seth Rogen world. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but, but what I wanted to ask you is, you know, you say that's one of the easiest jobs you've ever done, but, but I would think, looking at the script, if you don't pull off the humanity of that film, then it just doesn't work. It just becomes like a, a collection of jokes. Yeah. So when you look at that, what, what is the work that you have to do? I think you, you make sort of an apt assessment of it, and but the, the kind of humanity that you're talking about doesn't come from working hard. You can't, like, work towards that. That's why it was so easy, was because something like that, you kind of just have to almost stop trying and, and let, it, let it be that way, and the truth will sort of show. And the truth is, is that... You know, Seth I've known since doing 50-50 and same with, with Levine, the director. Uh, and, and Anthony Mackie, I, you know, is a newer friend. But we all, like, really made friends and enjoyed each other. And uh, it's sort of about not trying too hard, not sticking your own intentions in the way or putting too much work in it, but just being like, hey, we really uh, enjoy each other's company. We really make each other laugh. We're really actually having a good time being here in New York City. And if we just let that be, then that will come through in the movie. And, and so that's why it was so easy. Because right. we were sort of, or at least the way I thought of it was, I was intentionally, I didn't want to work too hard at it. I didn't want to overthink it. It's, I mean, I tend to think that the harder you work, the better it'll be, but that's actually not always true, especially with acting. Well, that's a great example with almost anything, right? Yeah. You you know, know, sometimes I, you can try too hard and get in your own way. Right, and, and I think that that's the definition of chemistry, too. Mm. Right when chemistry is happening, the worst thing you can do is is think about why chemistry is happening. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm probably guilty of it, to be honest, because I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's like my, you know, my dad's dad and my dad. They're both like their work ethic is they're, they're really hard workers, and I just I, I like apply that to to my job that I just I want to really work hard at this. Um, it's something I I uh, one of my goals that I want to learn just as I get older is when to ease back, when it's actually not, not serving the, the thing to work harder, when maybe sometimes it's, it's, it serves it better to work less hard. Well, listen, looking at your career and, and getting to watch you 
grow up really is it's fascinating and and then to sit down and talk to you after being such a fan has been really nice thanks so, so much man this is a really cool one oh, I, thank I really you. appreciate you setting this up this is uh you know a lot of interviews are very much the same old thing so it's nice to do something different thank you that's the highest compliment so thank you thank you Hey folks, you've reached the end of another episode of Off Camera. I hope you're liking the show. And remember, if you want to get the full Off Camera experience, go to offcamera.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Off Camera Show or me at Sam Jones. And if you want to get really personal, send me an email, sam at offcamera.com. And if you want to see the full music video for the music that's playing right now under my voice, go to hitrecord.org. Those guys did an amazing job taking all these collaborations and turning them into this song. So I have to thank Joseph Gordon-Levitt for that, who was willing to roll along with this idea, and Erica Gray for facilitating it, and all the great post-production people at Hit Record. Chris Jacobs, Greg Abraham, Raymond Way, Matt Conley, and Mike Malley. Thanks a lot, guys. Over on our side, I want to thank Nathan Shields, our sound editor, Katie Roseff, our production coordinator, our producer Crawford Shippey, our managing editor, Amy Jones, and our camera supervisor, Tyler Rumpf. See you next time, off camera.